Today's episode is recorded live in person. It's a really, really impactful episode. You're going to learn a new kind of meditation, and you're going to hear fascinating stories from a spiritual teacher who has spent 40 plus years uh, going up and going down and just learning great things. We're going to talk about the nature of the ego. We're going to talk about polyamory. Uh, We're going to talk about monogamy, and we're going to talk about all sorts of things that are going on inside your head. This is one of the deeper, more more spiritual, more introspective interviews that I've done. You want to hear the whole thing. Everyone's talking about red light therapy beds and for good reason. There's a company called ARRC LED that's building an entirely new class of LED devices. ARRC LED beds integrate proprietary scanning technology and frequency protocols to shape the delivery of six different wavelengths in dose-optimized photobiomodulation. Yes, that's a lot of words. What it is, though, is that photobiomodulation improves the underlying energetics of the cells in your body. And those changes can benefit nearly every tissue and organ and system in your body. You change your cells and you change your life. For more information, visit ARRCLED.com. Bulletproof Radio, a state of high performance. You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. Today's cool fact of the day is that researchers have never been able to understand how the seeds of cancer survive and thrive in people over the course of decades. So we know that sometimes something happens that triggers cancer, but you don't see it for so long that there were things you could have done, but you didn't do anything about it because you didn't know. But scientists just found out that circulating tumor cells in breast cancer are different from other types of circulating cancer cells. So we're now zooming into cells and even subcellular things to understand the differences between what's happening. And what that means is that we'll soon be able to identify people who are likely to have breast cancer much earlier than we did before because we now have this fine-grained ability to understand what's going on inside the human body, which is way cool. So these sorts of things may not ever hit the news, but these are the things that absolutely shift the needle for your odds of living a very long time, or your odds of being able to find something that's happening way before you ever would have known it before. This kind of thing lets us let go of you know being fearful and worried about things and just knowing, oh, we've got the science now. Before we get into today's show, I've got to tell what if there was a way to level up your energy, get rid of stress, and take more control of your body. Welcome to Quantum Upgrade. This is a new technology that taps into quantum energy to help you feel amazing. Quantum Upgrade has a lot of different products that help protect you from EMF and help activate your body's natural healing abilities. You can expect better sleep, more resilience, less stress, and better blood flow. The cool thing about Quantum Upgrade is that the products are backed by a lot of heavy-duty scientific studies, and there's a new measurable upgrade. You can now use Quantum Upgrade to increase your consciousness levels between 1,400 and 2,200 on the Hawkins map of consciousness. If you don't know what that means, do some research because it's impressive, it's fun to learn about, and it's something that I've come to understand. Ready to try Quantum Upgrade? Visit quantumupgrade.io slash Dave for a seven-day free trial. Talk about one of my favorite travel hacks and something that I, I use every single time I fly, and it's the Bulletproof Travel Mug. We tested hundreds of types of mugs to find something that would safely let you carry hot Bulletproof coffee in your bag next to your laptop without any fear of spilling. 
and we've got it. When I travel, I brew Bulletproof Coffee Beans in my room using a little water kettle, and then I put butter and brain octane or Instamix, uh, which is just a powdered brain octane and butter, into the mug, close the lid tightly, shake it, and it blends it up almost as good as using a blender. Nothing beats a blender. Uh, even the, the Tibetans with their yak butter tea who can afford blenders have blenders because they're better than just shaking something up. But that said, the Bulletproof Travel Mug is completely a game changer because it never spills and because it keeps your coffee hot for a very long time. So give it a shot. Look at Bulletproof.com. Today's interview is recorded live in the Bay Area at the Be Unlimited event from the Bulletproof Training Institute. And today's guest is a well-known guy and a, a spiritual leader. His name is Gempo Roshi. Uh, Gempo, welcome to the show. Thank you, Dave. Thank you very much. He's a, a Zen priest and a teacher in both the Soto and Rinzai schools of Zen Buddhism and someone who's taken what he's learned over the course of many, many years of study and turned it into something called Big Mind that he's lectured about globally and has been working on for, for just this fascinating path that we're going to go through in our, uh, in our interview today. You'll learn how he got where he is and some things that you can do. Big Mind, also known as Big Heart, enables thousands of people to really have an awakening. And as you know, if you've listened to the show a long time, I traveled to Tibet to learn meditation from the masters. I've <laughs> hooked electrodes to my head. Uh, I've meditated in caves while fasting and done all sorts of crazy stuff like that. In addition to hardcore science things, because I believe that we are both emotions uh, and psychology and spiritual and uh, chemistry and electricity and all those things all together. And if you try to think your way outside of, of a feeling, it never works. And if you try to feel your way outside of a thought, it doesn't work either. So I, I'm fascinated by this stuff, and I'm really honored to have a chance to interview Gempo Roshi. So, so thank you. Well, thank you, and thank you for having me here. I'm honored. I was particularly pleased when you accepted the invitation to speak to a group of a couple hundred uh, Bulletproof fans here at Be Unlimited, and you just finished a talk on, on Big Mind, and we're, we're going to get there. But first... How did you get started as someone who's done this much longer than almost any Westerner? Well, it actually started back in 1971. Um, I was having difficulty in a relationship, uh, and I decided to take some time off from work, and I went out to uh, the, uh, the desert, Mojave Desert. I went out there with a couple of friends, one of them a very old friend and his girlfriend, and while I was out there, they took a hike, went off uh, on their own, and so... I climbed this mountain and I went up to the top of the mountain and I was just sitting there and contemplating how could I mess up my life so much at such a young age. I was just 26 at that point. And uh, I mean, I had a, a very nice childhood. There was nothing, no problems. I was into competitive swimming and water polo and we won some titles and, you know, there was, it was quite a wonderful childhood. And then by 26, I'm divorced already. I'm unhappy. Uh, in fact, I'm feeling quite uh, stuck. And so I went out there to find some space. And I started contemplating my life. And as I was sitting there, something happened to me. Uh, I began to ask, where's home? I could see my VW camper parked out there, and oh, I knew that was home temporarily for the few days we were there, and then home back in Long Beach, uh, 
actually one block from where I'm living now after 45 years of leaving it. I'm leaving on Monday, though. Um, and it hit me. It was almost like the universe just came in with vengeance. And I became one with the cosmos. I, I realized I'm always home. I've never been any place but home. And uh, everything made sense. Everything became quite clear uh, and simple. And I became what you could say, one with the consciousness, one with the cosmos, one with light, one with God, one with the creator, one with all beings, one with all things. There was just absolutely no separation or, or distinction between me and everything else. And it was so profound, it actually changed my life forever. Now, you grew up in a Jewish family, right? I did. Now, did this have anything to do with any religious upbringing, any spiritual experiences you had before? It was just Not completely out of the blue. Just completely out of the blue. I had no religious training. Uh, my father was basically agnostic. He had left the uh, Jewish tradition when he was 10, when he moved from Poland to America. My grandfather had given it up, and so my father obviously gave it up. My mother was more atheistic. She also came from a Jewish background. Her parents came over around the 1900s from Russia and Poland. Uh, but they didn't have any religious training either. But I have a long line of rabbi, rabbis and rebbies on both sides of my ancestry, both my father's side and mother's side. Uh, so when you say, did it have anything to do with my religious upbringing? No, nothing to do with my religious upbringing. Probably something to do with my heritage, though, and my genes. Um, I'm glad you said that. I, I was going to ask you that, especially uh, Judaism is one of the religious traditions that focuses more on, on the maternal side of things. It's one of the more matriarchal uh, faiths. And when you look even at some of the, the Christian sides, there's always the maternal lineage where mitochondria comes from. And in my conversations with Native American shamans, uh, they've just flat out said, Dave, there are some things you're never going to do because you're white. <laughs> <laughs> right. So is, is, there, is there some, uh, it may, maybe some lineage, spiritual linkage there in your understanding? I think so. Yeah, uh, I you know, I, I had the great privilege of getting to know Rabbi Zaman Schechner. And I, I went to see him about 2003 after I discovered this process called, which I called the Big Mind, I now call Big Mind, Big Heart process, because I had heard that my grandfather's brother was his first spiritual uh, mentor. It was, he called him his midwife. He said that my grandfather's brother uh, was the one who really turned him on to deep spirituality. And so we got to share things together. And he was a Merzel, like myself. What's uh, a Merzel? My last name. Okay, cool. Yeah, <laughs> that's your, your, your official last name, right? right. That's, that's my official yeah. last name. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Wow. So, so you're sitting here and you haven't been raised with deep spiritual traditions, although it might have been in your lineage. Uh, you're on a mountain by yourself. Your friends are out hiking and everything dissolves. Did that scare the crap out of you? No. Okay. <laughs> no, it, it didn't. I, I think if I had known what was to come, mm -hmm. it would have, Okay. but I had no clue. I'm just sitting there, kind of naive and innocent, and all of a sudden, it all happens. There was a great awakening. And actually, whatever I realized then is still happening now, 46 or so years later, 
Uh, only thing is, it's clarified more. Things are clearer, and of course, I've matured a little bit, hopefully, since <laughs> I was 26. But the realization, the awakening, was basically the same. And in fact, very recently, just January of this year, 2017, I was with my partner, and we were in, uh, in Maui. And I said to her, I said, Charlotte, you know, I realize that I may have disowned a very important voice, and that being the light. Because it was so profound and so amazing for me back then that I actually felt I needed to distance myself from the experience because in that experience, I was totally, in a way, uh, identified with being God, the creator, and all creations. And it was kind of, um, you could say, uh, inflating <laughs> of the ego. Yeah, the spiritual so, ego is, is the spiritual a ego. One. So I started to actually, not consciously, but unconsciously, I began to disown that voice and distance myself from it. What I said to her, I said, if the light is disowned, I'll bet the dark is also disowned. So I said, I know that I need some guidance here. And she's a psychotherapist. She's been in spiritual practice for 20 years. And she's a, a great human being. I said, I'm going to ask you, would you guide me through these two voices? But you have to make a promise to me. And that promise is, I know that once I become one with the light again, I'm going to be completely drunk in that light. I'm going to be completely addicted to that light. I know me. I love being the light. I love being God. I love being all that. And I said, it's going to take something to get me back to just being Gempo or Dennis. So you're actually a little afraid then. I that was you, a little afraid. fall into that and not be able to come back. Exactly. Okay. So I owned my fear. And, and how long ago was this? January. Okay. <laughs> Very recent. Okay. Very recent. She looked me straight in the eye and she said, well, you got to make me a promise. And I go, okay, what is it? When I ask to go to the opposite of the light, you do what I say. That's a big promise. And I said, wow, that was strong. It brings tears to my eyes now because it was so powerful. And I said, I, I agree. I will do that, I promise. So she then had me speak from the voice of the light. And just as I knew what happened, <laughs> I became one with the light. And I was blinded by the light. It was so powerful. It was actually scary for her. Uh, it was a very scary moment. All this power and blinded in that I couldn't see anything else. It was just light. That's all there was. I was one with the light. So she did as she was promised. And she said, okay, now I'd like to speak to your opposite because that's the way I, I, I teach it. And I said, okay. And she said, let me speak to the opposite, the dark, but also disowned. And so we went to the dark, also disowned, and I know she was relieved. Because when I went to the dark, there was something more human about it, but it wasn't very nice. Sure. It was dark, and it was a shadow. So we went through that, and then we owned that voice. And actually, the dark owned became not frightening at all, and not evil at all, not bad at all but simply the awakened state. There is no other. In that dark, you're simply in great emptiness, the great void. So I was there, okay. 
And then she did the next step. She said, okay, now let me speak to the apex of the light and the dark, meaning that which... Where they meet. Where they meet. Okay. That which embraces the two, the light and the dark, and transcends them. So we went to the apex. And I then acknowledged that I was both the light and the dark, like the yin and yang symbol. And within my dark, there was some light, and within my light, there was some dark. And I was the two as one, and I could embrace them. But then that evening went on, and we noticed that I couldn't come back to Gempo. I was the apex, and I was the light in the dark, but I had a very hard time speaking as Gempo. She said, do you notice you keep talking as the apex, and you're not speaking as my boyfriend, my how, lover. How could she tell the difference? Well, because I was talking about Gempo. <laughs> <laughs> you're talking about yourself in the third, third person. Like Krishnamurti <laughs> okay. used to do, you know, the speaker, the speaker, right? And I realized she's right. I didn't sleep that whole night. I was, there was so much energy going. We were in Maui. We are right on the ocean. So I stayed up all night and meditated. And I realized something I had never realized to that extent before. And that is that we are, for all eternity, kind of stuck in this flicker back and forth of light and dark, as beings of light and dark. And we have lifetime after lifetime after lifetime of going back and forth, and the flickers are so fast we're not aware of them. But actually, that's what we are. We're made up of light and dark. And that's who we are, and it just goes on. So the good news is that we live for all eternity. The bad news is that we're stuck. <laughs> In this internal, I call it the endless knot or the endless um, um, loop of light and dark. Now, when I was learning uh, some things about Tibetan Buddhism uh, in Nepal and Tibet, um, the teaching there was that, well, it, it isn't, you are alive for all eternity, but that if you reach a state of, of full enlightenment, that that stops in your understanding of things? Well, if you want to go there and become a non-returner, that is possible. I've been there and had that possibility. But as a bodhisattva in the Zen tradition, but I believe most Tibetan traditions too, Mahayana, the ideal is you make a vow to return endlessly to liberate all sentient beings. And I've made that vow more times than we could ever count. Yeah, it's a, it's it an act of service. Yeah. Right. So I have made a choice, a conscious choice, not to pass over that and, and just okay. keep returning as a person who is there to awaken other beings. How long do you think you'll live in this body? Well, I hate to limit it, but I've had this sense at least to 94. At least to 94? Yeah. All right. But I don't want to end it. I mean, I'm not trying to limit it and put some kind of cap on it. But I've just had this intuition for a very long time, probably 40-some years, that I'll at least live to 94. That's a, that's a nice number. Yeah. I can live with it. I'm 73 now. so I got another, another long yeah, while to, to do some while. good work. Yeah. All right. Now I'm going to ask you a crazy question. When I was at, uh, let's see if I can remember the name, it was Kopan Monastery uh, in Nepal. They had some, uh, what do they call them? holy remnants, like a jawbone of one of the masters of, of that place that was still making pearls. And, and they were describing how they you know, burned his body for three days and it wouldn't burn and all sorts of things like that. So when you pass, are you going to have pearls come out of your jawbone? I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> I was hoping you'd say that. No, uh, I, I, I have no <laughs> clue. Um, you know, it's an interesting thing. Um, 
And I think it's an important thing. And that is, uh, the way I look at it, I said uh, before when we were just kind of talking, I said I've changed the way I meditate, or if we can call it meditation, the way I sit. So for 40 years, I sat a very Zazen style of meditation, cross-legged, full or half lotus, and so on. And I sat with back up straight, upright, mm-hmm. and a little bit stiff, and not always comfortable. And meditated what we call shikantaza, which is just sitting or doing koans, which are riddles and puddles that we answer and so forth. Sometimes with an intention and very often with no intention or no goal. But at some point, I became very stressed. And the stress was right here in my chest, and I couldn't get it out. No matter how I meditated or how long I meditated, the stress was there. And I'd gone through quite a bit ordeal in 2011, which I'm sure you're aware of, and probably many are. And it was stressful. I basically lost everything, including my name, my reputation, everything. And it stressed me because I lost loved ones. I, I, I you know, I, I created a hell in a way. Do you want to talk about that story a little bit? I'll, I'll talk about okay. that, but I want to get to this first. All right. So I had to find a way to release that stress in me. So it was like, I didn't have much choice. I had to find a way to to release it. So I discovered a way of meditating, and I'm just gonna share that, if you don't mind, with our listeners. Because anybody can do it. And it simply takes all the kind of, I don't know, judgment out of meditation, preference out of meditation, I sit in a chair, a comfortable chair, sometimes an easy chair, sometimes a chair just like we're sitting in right now, whatever's available in a hotel room, wherever I am. But I sit in a chair, I don't cross my legs anymore in the lotus style because I find that it creates tension. So I sit with legs about shoulder width apart on the ground and I put my hands in a comfortable position on my lap or on the arm of the chair or in a mudra what we call the cosmic or universal mudra, but we don't have, need to go into and, that. And a mudra, just for people listening who don't meditate, this is a finger position that can affect your nervous system. Yeah, yeah, and allows the circulation of energy to flow in a closed circuit, so it's not an open circuit. Okay, so I'll sit that way, and then I sit leaning back against the chair, which is forbidden in Zen tradition. Mm-hmm. And I find that I really recommend people sitting back against the chair, relaxing the shoulder, relaxing the jaw muscles, relaxing, relaxing the teeth, relaxing everything in the body, releasing any tension, and just finding space and a release of all tension in the body, and just rest the arms and relax. Then I discovered, I started with a few deep breaths, where I was taught, usually three. I went to 10, and I found that 10 was often enough and very often not enough So I've now increased it, but there's no rule to this, there's no right way of doing it, of 20 deep breaths, and I'll explain it to you and to our listeners. And that is, you take air in through the nose, nostrils, breathe in very deeply, and expand the abdomen quite full. Fill it up, and then breathe out through the mouth as if you're breathing through a very thin straw, 
and very slow and very long, with lips puckered, and pull in the abdomen as if you're pulling in the balloon in your abdomen. And then at the very end, the first time, just kind of cough a little bit, <laughs> get it all out. Then allow the in-breath to come naturally when it comes, and breathe in again very deep and very slow, filling the abdomen completely up, expanding the balloon of the ball of our belly. And then again through the mouth. When you say long exhale, are we talking 30 seconds long? At least. Okay. Sometimes more like a minute. Okay. But don't force it, but as long as you can. And then again, breathe in. And just count each time we exhale, the first one, second, two, third, three, and count up to 20. If you lose track, just start over. It doesn't matter. It's not, it's not an exercise in that way. It's just to get the breathing so we get all the oxygen out and we start replacing the oxygen. And also the, the diaphragm and the abdomen take over. And the breathing becomes very natural and very organic where I'm not breathing any longer. Breathing is breathing. So the breath itself is breathing. There's no doer. There's no one there doing it. Then it takes over, and after about 20 breaths, it could be longer, shorter, whatever works. There's no hardcore rule to this. Be creative, be inventive. But then after about 20 breaths, or when you feel like it, then only breathe through the nose. And just allow the breath to take over. So you're not pushing it, you're not forcing it any longer. Now this is the important thing. Have no preference of how you sit. Don't have a preference for awake over asleep, aware over unaware, conscious over unconscious, attentive over inattentive. So no judgment of any no flavor. No judgment and no preference. And if you have a preference, don't have a preference for having no preference. <laughs> if you have a judgment, don't judge the fact that you judged your sitting and said, oh, that was bad or that was no good or I prefer this. Don't judge it. Don't have a preference. Allow yourself, if you get sleepy, to fall asleep. Now, I forgot one thing. Hold your head slightly down. If your chin is too high, you'll get whiplash if you fall asleep. In fact, you can cause serious damage you if you can. have done that. Yeah. Yeah. So you want to have your head slightly down. So if you fall asleep, and you might, and there's nothing wrong with it, your head will just fall deeper down. That's all will happen. It's the secret to sleeping when you meditate. Okay. <laughs> did I you was, did you just piss off half the meditation teachers on the planet? With well, probably all. <laughs> you know, when in 1976, I was opposite four great Zen masters. And I was very young, of course, in 76. And there were four great masters opposite me. And they slept the whole time. And I judged them. I thought, what's wrong with these guys? They're, they're sitting so poorly. They're sleeping the whole time. And then I realized, no, they're relaxed. So what I'm teaching is how, I call it the art of relaxation, how to truly relax right down to a cellular level. So no judgment for being awake over asleep for attentive over inattentive, and just allow whatever arises to be there without the judgment, without the evaluation. And you'll relax more and more, and I guarantee 
anybody can do this. And what's the most difficult is knowing that it is okay to fall asleep. Because most meditations teach you never fall asleep. Mm -hmm. And everybody's sitting there trying so hard to be awake and everybody's falling asleep. At this point, I don't even fall asleep anymore. It's rare that I get to fall asleep. Now, what I do is I do it when I wake up at night. So it doesn't matter. Last night was 1 o'clock. Sometimes it's 2 o'clock. Sometimes do you, it's 3 you o'clock. you sit up or you do it laying down? I, I put on my, uh, my sweats. I go to my chair and I sit in a chair. I do not do it lying down. Okay. I think it's very important to be upright. You can learn to meditate lying down. It doesn't have the same effect. The kundalini, the energy doesn't go up the spine as well. So you want to be sitting upright, but not stiff and not erect, but just straight and relaxed. Uh, There's a book I read, geez, 10 plus years ago. Blew me away. It was called, I think, Tibetan Sleep Yoga or something like that, or Sleep Meditation. And and the foreword is what sticks in my mind. I, I can't say I did all the exercises, but the guy said, look, you know, this is not my first time on this planet and, and I'm just too busy with my day life. So I don't meditate anymore. I do all my meditation while I'm asleep. I'm like, I want to be that guy. <laughs> so apparently you can do some things when you're asleep. <laughs> I'm not there by a long shot. You but- can do a lot when you're asleep. <laughs> I find that I love this way of sitting. Okay. Uh, in fact, maybe I'm a little addicted right now. It's so blissful. I call it silk like samadhi. I'm somewhere between alive and dead. Wow. Awake and unawake, conscious and unconscious. My girlfriend, Charlotte, she'll come over and check if I'm still breathing sometimes or check to see if my, I've got a pulse because I seem quite dead. Wow. It's such a deep state and it's so relaxing and it's so, so blissful. It's so beautiful. And then during the day, I don't worry about it. Okay. Now, I don't believe that meditation makes you a better person. I don't believe anything makes you a better person. You just have to be a better person. <laughs> you know, you can't full, full you accountability. Can't, right? Yeah, full accountability. You can't expect that if you meditate now, I'm a great person. I'm better than other people. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm more awake and I'm more conscious and I'm a superior being. That's a trap. But but you could say that coffee makes a better person, right? Is yeah, that... and, and, and <laughs> I I do do my bulletproof. Do you really? Before I met you. <laughs> Before I even knew about Bulletproof, I started doing it. It was actually recommended by a doctor friend of mine. Really? Yeah. yeah. Now, she happens to be alternative, but she is a doctor. A long time ago. Wow. Well, not a long time ago, about six months. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah. Got it. Yeah. yeah. So she probably heard about it through Bulletproof because I, I think I'm did. the first one to do that. Okay. Yeah. No, she's turned me on to your product. And what I do is <laughs> wow. I have my own. I'm going to give you my. Yeah, tell me okay, how you do it. I do it. Okay. So here's what I do I take my organic coffee. And I make, that, I make it strong. I like strong coffee. I only have one cup in the morning. I put in a lot, little cacao. Mm-hmm. Oh, I love cacao. cacao. Yeah, we make that. Yeah, yeah. I, I put in some of that, about a small teaspoon. And then I put in about a teaspoon or more of the Bulletproof. The Brain Octane. The Brain Octane. Right. I heat up some almond milk or some almond, you know, whatever, hazelnut milk. Mm-hmm. And I'll... I heat that up and I put that in and that's my coffee in the and morning. you blend it up. I blend it. Well, I don't blend it. I just mix it. I stir okay. it up. And uh, what I find is it keeps me going all day. I, it, I'm not trying to put a, a plug in for your product, but I use it and I love it. it one of the things we found at the uh, the 40 Years of Zen, the, the neurofeedback center uh, that I run, 
is that people who are doing intense personal development, like meditation-like states with feedback, when they have brain octane, they can do about two and a half times more of it before they hit the wall. Mm-hmm. And various other things that enhance mitochondria, mm-hmm. uh, as long as your mitochondria are making energy and electrons, if the energy is going into meditation, more energy equals, uh, I don't want to say ease, because it's still work to go into some states, but just you have what it takes to get into the right, state. Right. And, and certainly for me, I, there's a, a quantifiable difference, a quantifiable, and you can measure it in brain waves. Well, I didn't bring my bulletproof because I'm traveling and I didn't check mm-hmm. in any luggage and I didn't bring my cacao and I missed it. <laughs> uh, well, we, we'll make it for you here. Okay, I know at the conference you. we do have some some real bulletproof. Okay. Uh, we'll get you a little three-ounce bottle. Lunch. Okay, good. So yeah. you, we hooked you up good. Uh, it's it's interesting that you, you came across that and it's uh, it, it's something that I've become more aware of. Uh, in my own path, I, I, I was always kind of interested in this stuff, but also come from a very skeptical, very science, you know, engineering-driven family, um, atheist uh, kind of a background. And I, I noticed that I weighed 300 pounds, and, and I was you know, pretty quick to anger. I would say not, not exactly a very nice person. And as I started working on this stuff, it was very hard to go into the meditative states or to follow a practice when I was eating the wrong stuff or when my biology just wasn't working. So the better I was able to treat my body, the more effective and efficient my practice became. And I've learned that that it's possible to eat you know, hot dogs and cheese whiz all day long and to meditate. It's just an incredible amount of effort. And if I save the effort, I can probably go deeper. Uh, so for me, that that's part of what you know, lets me do all the things I can do is, is to I don't even know how to say which comes first, you know, the body or mind, but I do know that if the body's there, the mind seems to work better. Well, you know, I'm not sure there's any difference. Yeah. I think they're one thing, right? The body and mind, we make that correct that distinction. But of course, they're interconnected, and what comes first, who knows, you know, because it is body-mind. I, I've even stopped using it as two words. I just put it together, body-mind, Yeah, in it, my books. It, it is... I would say that's the most accurate way you could describe it. In the recent book that I wrote, which was about mitochondria, and specifically it's called Headstrong, but you look at a distributed network of a quadrillion ancient bacteria inside your body, they're all sensory networks. They're connecting electromagnetically to the world around you. And we actually know they do that now versus we theorize it or it's, there's a mystical thing to it. We, we know what they respond to. And so they roll up all the signal and then it comes into your nerves and all those roll up into nerve plexuses. Then those roll up into different parts of the brain. We get our pattern matching systems and all that. And when you look at that system, <laughs> where did the brain begin or end? I, I think it it ends, at least if you are looking at, at a boundary around the body, it ends at a subcellular organelle that's in every cell in your body except red blood cells, basically. Uh, what do you think of that theory? Well, I mean... I totally agree with that. Okay. Actually, what I'm what I'm saying about this way of meditating is it's getting down to that cellular level yeah. and allowing everything to move. You know, I know you know this, but I'll say this for our listeners yeah. that may not know it: when energy is stuck, that's where all our difficulties come. And what acupuncture and acupressure and shiatsu and all that's about is moving that energy. And you can move it actually just putting your hands there or near the person. You can also do it mentally. But it's about a movement of energy that's stuck. And so what I had to find was a way to unstick myself. And that's what I came up with this meditation. Because when you relax that deeply, it also allows you not only to relax on a cellular level, 
But facing one's own death, it's not a scary process anymore. I do it every <laughs> night. I die every night. So why should I be afraid of death, you know? Yeah. You can actually go to this place where we have a saying in, in Buddhism, it's called gatte, gatte, paragatte, parasamgatte, bodhisattva. It's a chance at the end of the Heart Sutra. And gatte, gatte means gone, gone. Paragatte means have gone. Parasamgatte means have already gone. Bodhi is awakened. Svaha, yippee. So gone, gone, have already gone, have already gone, awakened. Yippee. That's what we did today. Wow. That's what you did today at, at the, the Be Unlimited event yes. for people. Yeah. You, you walked them through the whole thing. It, it's interesting. Another guest, uh, this was uh, Neil Strauss, who's a, a well-known author and a friend and, and a, an amazing human being. And I know I, I make some people mad. He's, he's the guy who wrote the game, but he, uh, he's, he's demonstrated an amazing amount of, of personal growth. And, and I've gotten to be friends with him. And he's a guy I really respect because he's willing to be humble. Uh, and I think I pushed his buttons when I said, really, I don't feel fear <laughs> the, the way I did before because of, of what you just said there. Like when you've kind of faced death, I, I don't want to die. I'm not looking to die. But the things that would have made me really tense up and, and be very reactive and go straight to the ego, I, I don't feel like I have those buttons pushed. I mean, if you put my hand in you know, a burning fire, I'm like, okay, I'm going to have a visceral pain response. So I'm going to be afraid of the pain, but it's not the deep visceral fear. And I, I, I'm not entirely sure how I arrived at that state other than just lots of neurofeedback and resetting neurological responses I didn't like. How did you get to the point of experiencing death every single night? Well, like I said, this, this particular thing happened in the last six years. That was just the last six years. Yeah, that okay. was the last six years. In fact, over probably the last four and a half years, it took me about two years to kind of come up. I, was, I started almost in the beginning of 2011 uh, looking for another way, and it took me a while to discover this. Let's talk about what happened in 2011. You, you mentioned that earlier. Yeah, well, uh, a lot happened in 20, <laughs> <laughs> a whole new chapter of my life. You know, I'd been teaching Zen for a long time. I started this in 71. I began teaching by the time I was, uh, well, it was 1978, so I think I was probably 20, I don't know, 27, 28, something like that. And um, maybe a little older. And in 2011, I left a BlackBerry, uh, a new one that I just downloaded at home on my desk, and I took off for Europe to do this event with 400 students for, I don't know, I think it was 10 days. And uh, like always, I called home when I landed there, and uh, my wife said, you forgot something. And I said, what did I forget? She said, your BlackBerry. I said, no, I have my BlackBerry. She said, well, there's a BlackBerry here, and it says, let's meet up and make love. And I go, shit. Uh-oh. <laughs> Uh-oh. <laughs> that was the new BlackBerry. And so I, I came out with it. I just, okay, it's true, you know. I got very angry, of course. I was very upset. Uh, I said some not nice things you know, to her, but uh, we're great friends now, but I was very upset. But who was I upset with? Me, right? Yeah. But I couldn't own it immediately. But I was facing all these students that were there in this island off the, uh, in the it's called Amalan, it's off the uh, Netherlands, in the North Sea. 
And I just had to come out with it. I said, some of you know, but most of you don't know. And I've been very dishonest, and I've cheated on my wife. I had a couple of lovers, and uh, I haven't been uh, a very good role model. And you know, I, the whole thing came out. And my life crumbled, basically. Sure. Uh, my reputation, uh, it wasn't the first time. So a bunch of Zen teachers, in fact, 66, signed oh. a petition that I shouldn't teach anymore, at least for a year. And uh, I said, listen, I need to be accountable to myself. And I need to work on myself because I've got some sh shadows my, you know, that I'm aware of. And I'm not going to be accountable to you. I'm going to be accountable to myself and my higher authority and to my therapists and my, my mentors. And I went deeply into my own shadows and where I'd gone off and where I had disowned a lot of voices and particularly the one who feels entitled. I talked about that today. Uh, where I felt that I was, because I was giving so much and I was there in service full time, 24 seven, without a rest, without a, a leave, you know, a, no sabbatical for 40 some years, I felt entitled to a little fun, a little relaxation, but it was not appropriate. And I didn't have appropriate boundaries. So I started to look at the importance of boundaries, the importance of honesty, the importance of integrity, and all these. and. I've been through quite a transition uh, these last six and a half years. It's been an amazing thing. It's like when you go through cancer, which I've also been through in 2003, you most likely say, you know, it was the best thing that ever happened to me, but I certainly wouldn't wish it on anybody and I wouldn't want to go through it again. And that's kind of what my work's about. If I can help some people avoid making these same mistakes and getting sucked up in the power and the ego tripping that I got caught up in because I got caught up and I was drunk in my own power. It, it seems like that's a common pitfall for spiritual leaders. Uh, you wouldn't be the first spiritual leader <laughs> to have a few girlfriends or to drive gold Rolls Royces or w whatever the, the particular vice is. Uh, I've seen it in the yoga community. I've seen it with other meditation teachers. And I mean, is, is this all spiritual ego stuff? Is there more to it? Is this old trauma? Okay, well... <laughs> I did talk a lot about this. I'm happy to repeat some and more, of it. Because our yeah. listeners didn't hear yeah. your main talk. Yeah, right? so I'm going to repeat some of it today because uh, this was a very interesting question people ask. There are stages of development, okay? Mm -hmm. And I, I named five stages. So the Ericksonian stages of adult development or, or no, Tibetan ones or Japanese Zen? Japanese Zen, yeah. Yeah, it's, a Japanese, well, it's actually Chinese. Chinese Zen, uh, okay. Yeah, okay. So the first stage is when we have our first awakening, our first opening, our first glimpse of something bigger, higher, and greater. We call it a Buddha awakening, right? And then we, we actually do our best to enter a practice where we begin to embody that. We begin to actualize that, the, the wisdom of the Buddha, and we get into a devotional practice. And we meditate, and we do prostrations, and we do all kinds of practices. Uh, chanting and, and so on, prayers, etc. And that goes on. Eventually, we go through what we call great doubt. It means we do everything that we're supposed to do. We get it all right, and our life's still screwed up. Okay. We're still not completely happy. We have 
happiness. We go through periods. I mean, the first year of my own awakening, I, I was incredibly happy. But then I went through the whole devotional thing and practicing under a teacher and going through, you know, what that's like to go through that. And it wasn't so happy. You know, I wasn't so happy. It was a difficult practice. I trained with him for 24 years. Uh, but around 1986, after I had been already a successor and been given the title of Mahavirochana Buddha uh, in the line of the Buddha, which happened in 1980, in 1986, I went through great doubt. So it started the, the end of 85 and it went on to the beginning of 86, where I started to question everything. I questioned my teacher's happiness, my own happiness. I questioned reality. I questioned of what I had really experienced, what I had really gained, what I had really learned. And it all came up for question, everything. I doubted everything. Going through that and getting to a place of owning great doubt, there was a great awakening. Something opens up much deeper than it had opened up in 71. This was 86, so about, what is that, 15 years later. This awakening we call third level, third stage, it's the absolute, where we become one. We become the absolute reality. At this place, there is no relative existence. There's no fear, there's no suffering, there's no self, there's no other. This is what I call not just Buddhahood, but along with Buddhahood comes egohood. And a lot of us spiritual teachers get caught here. Because in this place, if you ask somebody in this place, and I know a lot of people in this place, and I've helped work with some people who've gone through this after me, at this place, if you say to them, what about your ego? I have no ego. I'm egoless. <laughs> Now, that's the most egotistical <laughs> place we can be. But we get caught there. Yeah. Now, when you're before that stage, you can see how silly it is. After that stage, you can see how silly it is. But when you're in it, it's reality. And in fact, you're kind of not even receptive to any feedback because you're a knower. You have become enlightened. You have become the, the um, authority, the authority figure. You are greatly enlightened, and you know it. You know I have no ego. I've lost my ego. I'm completely ego. Which is a big trap. Yeah. It's a huge trap. And all I want to do is help liberate all sentient beings. That's all I want to. My whole life is just about that. So, of course, there's a shadow, the dark. <laughs> it comes in, and it comes in with a vengeance. Because we see there's no ego, we act as if there's no cause and effect, as if there's no karma. You can never be completely free of karma. Karma is always a factor. You can think you're free, but you never are. So the danger of third stage, and we shouldn't avoid it. We have to go through it, but we should hurry through it as quickly as possible. I was stuck there from 86 to really 2011. Okay. I could say 94 because I had my first decline or descent of the mountain, 94, but it wasn't complete. I was still about 5,000 feet off uh, uh, <laughs> but, uh, sea level. But what are the next two stages? Okay, so there are two stages prior to great enlightenment, and then there are two stages after. The, the first one is where we fall. We descend the mountain. 
we let go of being enlightened. We let go of that. At this stage, we begin the integration process of the self, the, the contracted self, in this case, Dennis Merzel or Gempo. We, we begin that process of integrating all the shadows. We begin the process of integrating the, the fears and the, the angers and all the things that are the poisons. We begin that process. We think we've arrived at that point. That's the danger now. We think we have fallen to sea level. We think we have come back down off the mountain. We think we're at fifth stage. So fifth stage is a further descent, a more complete descent, where everything is shattered. In the fourth stage uh, of, of that fourth stage, we actually enter a place where we truly become dysfunctional without our ego, and we see the need for ego. We need an aware ego, we need a healthy ego, we need an awakened ego, but we still need an ego because when we're in that place, we're very dysfunctional. And I was very dysfunctional for about a good year, from 86, June of 86 to about 87. A lot of people listening might not understand what the ego is or, or what the nature of the ego is. Do you have a short answer for that? Yeah, basically the voice what we're mostly in is the ego. Now hopefully it's not so an unconscious and it becomes more aware ego, more awakened ego, a more mature ego. But basically it's what we present to the world. Who okay. we are, we present that to the world. And we have the ego has a bad name. We give it a bad rap when we say, oh, I'm so egotistical. That's the negative or that's the disowned part. When it's owned and aware, it actually becomes our final authority. It's the one that has to say, okay, this is appropriate and this is inappropriate. This is right action, this is wrong action. And it depends on one's position, time, place, and amount, what's appropriate, what's not appropriate. There are no rules. In my own practice, I, I've started looking at the ego as, as the system that keeps the meat alive. It keeps like it all going. The, yeah. the operating system for the body, basically. Right. And, and it it's very much wants you to not die. And it's willing to lie, cheat, steal, <laughs> It also very much wants to propagate the species, right. which would involve having sex. Uh, it wants you to probably eat everything <laughs> so you don't starve to death. And, and a lot of these behaviors that are, even breathing, it is an ego act, right? It, it's right. driven by something that's not you. That's right. <laughs> is, so, that, is that an accurate way of I thinking about it? I think it's very it? accurate. Okay. But I would say that's an ego that's not yet owned and embodied okay. and, and aware. Because that's why it gets a bad rap. Because it will do all these things just for the sake of survival. I would say that we can mature and okay. have a healthy ego where it's not so egocentric and becomes a, a little more altruistic, a little more giving, which you're doing. I mean, I know that's what you're really motivating you sure. is to offer this. So there's an aware ego, but we shouldn't forget or disown that there's also unaware ego. Absolutely. And, and we don't want to disown that and say, I don't have that anymore. You I, know? I think that the only time you don't have an ego is when you die. Yeah. And, and I'm not even sure then, but maybe. <laughs> okay, that's yeah. an interesting point. I don't, I don't know, know the answer to that. <laughs> I just don't know. You know, the, the thing that I see is that if we come from the apex, from this place where we own the fact that there's a self or an ego, and there is no self and no ego, and we can't remain in either one forever. We go back and forth, like I was saying about light and dark. We fluctuate back and forth, 
from the apex, we can see and be aware when I'm coming from an unhealthy place and an unwise place, or when I'm coming aligned with wisdom and compassion from a healthy and mature place. And we actually can monitor ourselves and, and come from this aware place. What do you think about celibacy? Some, some practices <sighs> teach it, some don't. Okay, I've tried it. Okay. I, I, I did some years of celibacy. Um, maybe for some people at some time, if they want to do it, it might be a good thing. I don't think it really affects or hinders the fact of our energy. Uh, I don't think it destroys energy, like some say. But I will say this, that sex and sexual relations can be very problematic. Yeah. And so there may be an appropriate time for celibacy if we're not married and we're not in a relationship, maybe. There's also appropriate uh, relationships. Sure. And I think, I mean, I don't ask anybody to be celibate. I never have. In mm -hmm. the 45 years of teaching, I've never asked anybody to be celibate. I never will. I've tried it, but I wouldn't ask anybody to do it. What about monogamy? Monogamy, I'm at a place where I believe in monogamy at this point. <laughs> you practice it pretty rigorously. <laughs> uh, but let me say where I'm at yeah. and, and with my partner. We have an agreement, and I, and I trust her implicitly, and I think she trusts me implicitly, we're always honest, okay? So if one of us is not monogamous, we trust the other is going to say it. Mm -hmm. And we'll work on it. We'll work with it. You know, it's not saying it's out of the question, but we'll work with that energy because we both know that energy could come up. And we're both in roles. I mean, she works with some very, very attractive men. She's a psychotherapist, spiritual teacher. I work with some beautiful women. It could happen. I doubt it. At this point in my life, I don't see it happening again. I see the relationship being one of honesty and integrity and one of monogamy. But I'm not so, saying it's right for everybody. So, so there's a difference between uh, uh, monogamy uh, with dishonesty and monogamy with honesty and even in a, a monogamous relationship, if there's honesty and something that isn't monogamous happens, it's a different place. I think so. I think my trouble thing. was I was dishonest. Yeah. I, I lied, I betrayed my wife, I lied to her, and that was the, the real problem. Had I been courageous enough to be completely open and honest, maybe this wouldn't have happened. I'm not saying it was bad that it happened, because it was a great it, gift. It was a teaching thing. It right? was a definite teaching thing. But I would say, to me at this point, transparency and honesty is more important than monogamy. But I'm not in a place where I would play with that again. I, but I'm also 73. <laughs> <laughs> uh, one of the reasons I was asking is I, I have a lot of friends uh, who are under 30 who are experimenting with polyamory or non-monogamy and things right. like that. And the vast majority of them have a really good time, as you would expect. Uh, but also, emotionally, it seems to take a pretty, hev a pretty heavy toll uh, because even if they're practicing the honesty, a lot of the ego behaviors or, or just natural emotions creep in, uh, and, and it seems like it's a bit of a struggle. That age is a struggle. <laughs> <laughs> well said. It was for me, that's for sure. It's a struggle. I mean, yeah. I've really struggled with this until really the last six, seven years. Yeah. Uh, well, I, I appreciate you uh, being real honest and open uh, so we can talk about that. I, I think that can have some value for people listening. Yeah, thank you, Dave. If someone came to you tomorrow and they said, Gempo, 
given everything that you've learned, everything you've experienced, you know, in and out of your spiritual practice, like I want to perform better as a human being at, at everything I do. What are the three most important pieces of advice you have for me? What would you offer them? Well, one, one is to own every voice that we become aware of as much as possible and its opposite. Hmm. So like today, what we did was we owned the awakened, intelligent mind, but we also went to the unawakened, stupid mind and own them both because there's a lot of freedom when we own the so-called negative, the ones that we don't like. So that's one. Be kinder, more compassionate, more giving and trusting. And have respect for those that maybe are a little older and a little more mature and be open and receptive and take care of those that may be a little further behind where one is in their life, in their practice, and in their evolving or maturity. And have great respect and, and faith. And come from a place of great faith, but not disowning doubt. Have doubt in your faith and have faith in your doubt, in your questioning. Because it's very important to question everything to doubt everything, it's also important to come from a place of faith. I think bottom line is great faith. Well, thank you very much for being on Bulletproof Radio. It's, it's been an honor uh, and a pleasure. And where can people find out more about your books? Anywhere you'd like to send them to learn more? Yeah, well, bigmind.org. Uh, that's easy, B-I-G-M-I-N-D.org. Uh, everything's there. Uh, also, Gempo Roshi at me.com um, is my my email okay. and people can write me um and uh we have events we've got some events in september in utah we've got other events uh, later on in the year one in maui in december so people can just go to bigmind.org and find out about us i have a new book out that i t- came out just about a year ago called um spitting out the bones and it's my 45-year journey where I try my best to be as honest and uh, straightforward and uh, transparent as I can with my rises and falls and my successes and failures. Beautiful. Well, thanks again. You're very welcome, and thank you, David. Thank you. The Human Upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels, and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products. Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media.